All right, you guys can be seated. My name is Matt. I'm the uh, pastor here at Grace and Peace, and it's just so great to be together outdoors today. Um, I am going to, oh, I can see a little better. I, the sun can't make up its mind. So if I put the sunglasses back on, it's not because I'm trying to be cool. Okay, it is because I'm trying to be cool. But it also helps me to see when the sun's especially bright. And don't worry, I am wearing sunscreen. I know some of you were worried about a man this white getting melanoma. So never fear. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 19. If you don't know where that is, it's on the right side of your Bible, kind of the back quarter. If you get to like 1 Corinthians or Romans, you've gone too far, go left. Uh, some of you guys are scrolling and that works too. But before we begin, let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we look at your word, we would get deeper insight into your character, into your mission, and what you would require of us. In Jesus' name, amen. What's it like to witness your own salvation? A long-awaited day of deliverance, like if you were in Paris, August 24th, 1944, and you had been under Nazi occupation for however many years, and the Allies roll into the city and liberate the city, and, and you've probably all seen the news footage, people are going bananas because their deliverance had come. Or what would it be like if you were a South African in the city of Pretoria on, uh, on, on May 10th, 94, when, when Nelson Mandela, who had spent decades in prison, was now being sworn in as president. And after a hundred years of oppression and apartheid, that system came crashing down and your deliverance had come. Or a little closer to home, if you were here in Denver, January 24th, 2016, when Von Miller and the Broncos defense slammed the snot bubbles out of Tom Brady and the Patriots on their way to Super Bowl 50. And Tom Brady was on the ground 17 times in that game. Yes, our deliverance came, we witnessed it. But we all remember your heart leaps up in your chest. The, the fear goes away and you realize that you've been saved. If you can imagine what that would be like to, to witness a long-awaited deliverance. And all those examples are good examples, especially the Broncos. Anyway, not really, obviously. But for the people in our story, in the, in the book of Luke, the Jews, they had waited six centuries for a day to come when they would be delivered from oppression. You see, ever since the exile in 586 to the Babylonians, they had been under foreign domination. It went from Babylon to Persia to Alexander's empire and the empire that came after that. <clears throat> and then finally, for the last 80 years, the Romans had been their oppressors. And there were prophecies that a king like King David, the great savior king of old, was going to come again. They called this person the Messiah, the savior, also in Greek, the Christ. They were waiting for 600 years. And every year there was a, the, the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. The Passover celebrates the Exodus when God delivered his people 
out of Egypt. So you can imagine these Jews that have been waiting 600 years, this revolutionary spirit has been growing, and this year there is extra excitement and extra buzz as everybody gets together in Jerusalem because there's this guy out there who they say could be David come again, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the king who would come and he would kick the Romans out militarily. He was going to start a successful revolution, kill lots and lots of Romans on his way to reestablishing David's kingdom. And so when we get to Luke chapter 19, verse 28, when, when what we call the triumphal entry, things couldn't be at more of a fever pitch. And look what Jesus does here. It says, and when he had said these things, he had said something before, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, that is the last mile, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it here. Now, have you ever read this story, those of you who have, and said, what's the deal with the, the colt? What's the deal with the baby donkey? Why is it mentioned? Well, that's a good question. You know, the Bible does not waste words. What Jesus is doing is declaring himself to be the king. You notice he chooses. He, he doesn't get tired at the end. They've walked this whole way. He's not like, not last mile, I'm so tired. He's like, no, last mile, get me a baby donkey. Why? It's because, it, uh, because of two prophecies from the Old Testament. Genesis 49, I believe verse 11, where a descendant of the tribe of Judah who would tie his colt to a vine would be like this great ruler that restores things. And then Zechariah 9, what John read to us earlier, it says, behold, your king comes. Now, when Zechariah 9 was written, there was no king. They were in exile or just after the exile. And they're saying, your king is coming. How will you know him? He's riding on a baby donkey. So Jesus... Get me this specific thing, a tied baby donkey. He is declaring himself to be king. Not only that, in verses 32 through 34, we see him give orders like a king. It says, so, so those who were sent away uh, and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Ancient world, you couldn't just go around taking people's donkeys. It was, it was generally frowned upon to take a donkey. But if you were the king, you had prerogative over your subjects, including their donkeys. Now, not only does he give this order, but you, it gives you some sense of how well-known Jesus had become because they just say, the Lord, and they say, okay, take our donkey, right? So he's, he's, he chooses the donkey, he's giving kingly orders, and then he proceeds in a victory procession. Verses 35 and 36 says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, 
a victory procession is not something we really see much anymore, but in the ancient world, when your king would take down your enemies, they would come back and the last mile, the, the citizens of the city would come out and go bananas. You would do things like, and in the, the Gospel of John, we're told this happens, wave palm branches when Simon Maccabee uh, defeated their enemies 100 years before this. That's what they did. Another thing you might do is throw your cloak down. Your one and only cloak, folks. These were not rich people. You have one cloak. Who are you throwing it down for? You're giving it up for the king alone. So Jesus is claiming kingship and he is proclaimed king. I want to call your attention to a single word in verse 35. When they throw their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. That word for set is not an ordinary word for sitting someone on something. It is only ever used of setting a king upon a throne. So not only is Jesus saying, I'm the king, his people are saying he's the king. And not only that, they, we see them throwing their cloaks down, declaring him king. And then to top it all off, they sing Psalm 118 in verse 37 through 39. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, this is key, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay. They're singing Psalm 118, which was understood to be a prophecy of the Messiah. And do you know when you would sing Psalm 118? It's when the people were ascending, going up. It's a psalm of ascent with the king. Who are they with? They're with Jesus. So he says he's the king. They say he's the king. Clearly, Jesus is the savior. Sermon over roll credits. Isn't Palm Sunday great? No. That isn't, that isn't how the story, story goes, is it? something starts to go a little awry. Look with me at verses 41 and 42. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Wait, what? And this, this word for wept, it isn't the dignified tear, I'm so, this is so great. It's he's weeping and lamenting weeping. Now, imagine if you're there, everybody's singing, throwing cloaks. This is just like Simon Maccabee. This is just like King David. This is our day of salvation. We're going to get rid of the Romans. Jesus, this king is going to kill so many people. This is, gonna, this is the day we've waited 600 years for. And then you hear something. It sounds like a man crying. Okay, crying because he's happy to see this day. No, you're looking. It's Jesus, this revolution leader. I don't know much about starting a revolution. I'm pretty sure you don't start one with crying. Okay. And by the way, he's riding a donkey. Have you ever seen someone get messed up bad by someone riding a donkey? I have not. They're not much used in war. By the way, a donkey, especially a baby donkey, was the traditional sign of a peace mission. Wait, this is starting to look wrong now, isn't it? He's crying. He's riding a donkey, and, and what's more, he's lamenting. He's saying, saying that, that would you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That doesn't sound very hopeful. 
He's weeping and lamenting. And it gets worse than that. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wait. So Jerusalem, the capital city, who, which he's about to take the throne and set up David's kingdom again, he's prophesying it being besieged, uh, having the barricades built that the Romans liked to build, where they would build these huge earthworks and, and besiege your city from it with their catapults, and then completely destroyed. Does that sound like the end of a successful revolution to you? It does not to me. And by the way, this exact event happens in the year 70 AD. The Romans do indeed come, besiege the city, destroy it, including the temple. So what started off as the culmination of your hopes of salvation is taking a very wrong turn. And, and those of us who know the rest of the story, you know that one week from this day, Jesus is not putting on a crown, but going to a cross. And this crowd that was proclaiming him king, well, maybe it's a different group of people saying crucify him, but no one's there saying Hosanna. No one's saying save us, Lord, anymore. Jesus is not the savior that they wanted. I think a lot of the time we have an idea of the salvation that we want God to give us. And guess what? Jesus is not the savior we want often. What we want salvation from is a hard life, from difficulty, from heartbreak. We, we, want, we want to be saved from loneliness. We want to be saved from suffering. We want to be saved from poverty. Yes, all those things are good to be saved from. Perhaps we want God to pour out judgment on our enemies because they're destroying the world. They need judgment, God. Save us from my political opponents or from our national opponents. Jesus did not come to be that kind of savior. He did not come to save us from difficulty or disappointment or heartbreak or, or failure thing is though a lot of the time what we think of that as something that's going to be our salvation is actually quite the opposite but one time I was walking through an alley on a, I was gonna sit down someplace do some work it was a long time ago and I saw an acquaintance of mine like sitting in a dark stairwell and uh, and I didn't know her well but she was clearly not doing okay. She was sitting in a dark stairwell alone. So I walked towards her and I, I said, hey, are, are you okay? And she turned her face towards me and even through her sunglasses, I could see that her face had been beaten badly. She was, she was swollen, she was cut. And what had happened is that her boyfriend who she lived with had become violent the night before and kicked her out. And she had wandered the streets until she came to this stairwell and was just sitting there, didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do either, but I knew I couldn't do nothing. So 
called up my roommate, made sure he was home. I called Sharon. We were dating at the time. And I said, what do I do? And, uh, and so took her to our, our house and, and we were trying to figure out like, Hey, could we, could we call the cops? She says, no, 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 that wouldn't help. It wouldn't help at all. Okay. Um, maybe, maybe we can get you to a shelter. She's like, no, I don't want to go to the shelter. That wouldn't help. We said, well, your family's back in Texas. They, they, they love you. We'll, we'll, we'll pay for your ticket. We'll get you on the bus today back to Texas. She says, no, that wouldn't help. You know, the only help that she would receive from us, the only thing she looked at as being her salvation was getting her boyfriend to take her back. And that's what she did. And when she got him to take her back, she was over the moon. Oh, everything's good now. Was it? No, what she thought was her salvation was quite the opposite. I think that's how we sometimes sound to God. When we're saying, God, save me from failure. God, save me from pain. God, save me from difficulty. God, save me from heartbreak. Are we actually asking for the opposite of salvation? Do you realize that if I got everything, all the salvation that I wanted, then I would still be captive to sin. I would still be cut off from God and I would still inherit eternal death because those aren't the things I think about on a daily basis. I think about my immediate needs and problems. But God loves us too much to give us the salvation that we want. So Jesus is the Savior. He's not the Savior we want, but you know what? He is the Savior that we need. We're cut off from God. And we need God to come to us. In verse 44, did you notice what Jesus says? He says, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Our primary problem is that we are cut off from relationship with God. And what hope do we have in Christ? It's that God came to us. That's the salvation we need. And even though the people of the day looked at the cross as the final failure of the mission of salvation. It was actually the greatest victory because Jesus delivered us from our central problem, the main thing that cuts us off from God, and that is sin. Jesus may not be the savior that we want, but he is the savior that we need. God loves us too much to give us the salvation we ask for. We're, we're asking God to save us from worry, but we may not realize that if we didn't worry, we may be totally cut off from God and community because we'd be so self-sufficient. God saved me from setback in my career, but you may not realize the only thing keeping you from becoming totally insufferable with your pride and destroying yourself is a little humility through failure. God saved me from loneliness. Let me marry this person. God may be trying to save you from that person or them from you. Keep it real. We may be asking God, judge my enemies, destroy them. But what we really need is for God's judgment to fall on Jesus, not us or our enemies. That is the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Not what we want, but what we need. C.S. Lewis puts it well. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. 
you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's making a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If Jesus is the savior that we need, our response on this Palm Sunday is to rejoice that we have the savior we need. And you may be saying, I don't feel very rejoicey right now. You know what? I, I, I believe all that and I'm glad, but my, my problems that are right in front of me are, have me much more worried that, uh, right now than about my eternal destiny or that God is with me and I'm in relationship with him. I hear you. I don't always feel like rejoicing. You know what? God's people often don't feel like rejoicing. Do you ever wonder why so many of the Psalms begin with commands to rejoice? It's because they didn't feel like rejoicing. We need to be called to rejoicing. I call you to rejoice in the salvation that we have now. Soji is, huh, girl? Yeah, she, she's over the moon about this. <laughs> and you may say, well, I don't get to experience that salvation yet. Now that's true. Most of, most of what God is going to do in healing us in the world is future. That's true. We're all projects underway. But can you get a little bit? Can you get a glimpse? Can you get a feeling of what the final day of your salvation is going to be? It's like for those of us <laughs> who got vaccinated <laughs> this week. It's okay. I didn't skip line. I'm one before. Like, I didn't feel, I felt worse in the moment. And my life hasn't changed. We're still masked in distance and everything. But everybody who was there and everyone who's gotten it, you know that once that this is part of the day that is coming when the pandemic ends, right? It's 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 a glimpse. It's a foretaste. It's a it's a grabbing on to the promise of the final deliverance we're going to experience, and that's just from COVID. We are going to experience a day of final salvation when the work that, be, that Jesus began is going to culminate in his return. We'll have another Palm Sunday, guys. And this time there won't be a cross involved. Please pray with me. God, may we rejoice in the salvation that you give to us. Help us this week to recognize that even when life is falling apart, even when we face significant challenges, pain and heartbreak, that you are still good and you are still our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.